And if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to be at the end of Matthew chapter 9. And for really the last year and a half, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew. And it's helpful sometimes just to kind of pull back and say, all right, what is, what is this book that we're studying? And what's it meant to do? And one of the helpful ways to think about the Gospel of Matthew is that it's a training manual. It's a training manual for discipleship. Or it's the curriculum for living a Christ-like life. So if you think about anything you kind of enter, whether it's a skill you want to develop or a career you enter, if you change jobs or a new subject you want to learn, you know, there's a progression. So you go through a progression of, you know, kind of stage one, stage two, stage three, and you can think about Matthew's gospel as this curriculum for Christ-likeness, this discipleship training manual, and it moves in a certain progression. So you could almost say that, you know, Matthew chapter five through nine is kind of like semester one, or since it's so big, it's really more like year one, where you first get the teaching of Jesus's kingdom manifesto, what he wants his people to be like and how they're to be in the world, and then you get his action, him, him doing, him working. You see him uh, displayed as the Savior. So it's kind of like year one is learning who he wants us to be and what he came to do. And then year two, in chapter 10, we're starting to transition to kind of the next module or the next section or the next year of this master class in following our master. And here, just like it, because there's five major teaching blocks in Matthew, so you can kind of think, all right, there's five major sections of content we're supposed to learn, but then all of those are paralleled with um, action where we're supposed to watch him. So we're not just supposed to listen, we're also supposed to watch him act. And so up until this point, Jesus has been doing all of the talking and he's been doing all of the, the touching, all of the healing. But now he's going to draw his disciples and draw us into and say, all right, now I want you to come and begin to do the things I've been doing. What you've heard me say, you now speak. And what you've seen me do, you now do. So we're moving where, um, you know, one of our lines that we used a couple years ago, we're going through Revelation is all about joining Jesus as he's making all things new. Now we're going to see the same thing in Matthew as he's bringing, he's inviting us, come, come with me as I'm restoring and renewing all things. So kind of our next stage in our curriculum is chapter 10 is Jesus's instructions on mission. What did he come to do? This is the, the mission or evangelism. And then the next section of 11 and 12 are stories where it's going to demonstrate who he is. Chapter 8 and 9 was all about what he came to do. He's Savior. And then chapters 10 uh, or 11 and 12 are all about who he is, his person. And so that's kind of year two of, of the curriculum or the module. He's going to unpack his great sermon on mission. So we're going to set the stage this week and over the next several weeks, kind of look at this great teaching, this instruction on mission. What are we supposed to be doing? And maybe a helpful way to frame it is, uh, you know, you've heard kind of the classic line from Caesar. I came, I saw, I conquered I don't know what it is in Latin. It's like Vinny, something, something, three words in Latin. I came, I saw, I conquered. You know, really here you can see Jesus actually coming. He said, I came, I saw, I had compassion. And this is how his, his mission moves. I came, I saw, I had compassion. So what we're going to do is first, let's kind of set the stage. Look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. And Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching them in the synagogues 
preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every sickness. Now, this is one of the key framing verses for this section of Matthew. It's one of the most important verses because it gives a framework of what Jesus came to do. It's actually paralleled. It's the exact same verse. You could look at chapter 4, verse 23. He went into all of Galilee, to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. And what that's meant to do is it's meant to kind of give you a frame that this whole section links together. It's kind of like when you watch TV series, you know, they always have certain ways that let you know a new show is starting and then a new show or that show is ending and you're transitioning into the next one. That's what this is doing here. But it's really important because this actually gives the framework of what Jesus came to do. And why that's so important for us as Christians and us at this life stage in our church is because what Jesus came to do when he was on earth, he hasn't stopped doing. These are still things that he's doing. He's just doing now as the risen Lord and doing it through his people. So this gives the, his priorities, what he came to do. He came to preach. He came to teach. He came to heal. And it was one of the key words. This, this actually sets up the first great commission in Matthew. There's a whole series of great commissions. And just like the one, the famous one at the end of the key word here is all. Uh, you get a, he went into all the towns and villages. And then he healed all English translators. will give it every, every disease, every sickness. Same word as all, all, all. So it's comprehensive in scope. Just like at the end, all power has been given to me, all authority, teach all that I've commanded. Now notice where he's going. Or the reason why this matters is because it's comprehensive. It's total. And then notice he enters into every town and every village. He's entering into all of these little local places. All real ministry is local. It's relational. You know, we think about the entering into towns, into villages. You know, in this world, you, know, you kind of have cities. And we, because we have like automobiles, it's kind of distorted how we view community. So when it says towns and villages, we almost need to think neighborhoods and streets. So like you look at this, this neighborhood, it's, it's almost done with completion. I think it's something like 2,400 homes are going to be in, in this neighborhood when it's finished. Now that that would, in essence, be a city in the ancient world. That would be a city. Your entire life would be there because you were limited to as far as you could walk. And so it's almost like when you read towns and villages, think he went into every neighborhood, and then the village is almost like the street, your little block. And why that matters is because Jesus wants a presence in every neighborhood and on every street. He wants a presence. And one of the things he's already told his people is that you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. So what that means is if we're followers of Jesus, we actually are the light and the salt on our street. So maybe one thing just kind of help, help shape the way you think about your street is sometime this week. Just go out there and you don't have to say it out loud because your neighbors might think you are strange. But you can just think, I am the salt and the light on this street. And if I don't represent light, if I'm not the salt, then, you know, who will be? But Jesus will have a presence in every neighborhood and on every street. And one of the things I think this can be helpful for us, because it's so easy in our world of such mega news and national things, is to get so caught up in grand things that we can neither understand or control. But one of the things he wants us is to have a real living local presence in our neighborhood. In our street. And notice what he came to do. Proclaiming, teaching, healing. Still the things he came to do. Now, let's move into, so look at the next verse of 36. So look what he does. So before Jesus sets up his ministry, there's a couple things he's going to do. And if we're going to follow him, we need to do these, 
Same things as well. Notice verse 36. When he saw, when he saw the crowd. So the first thing he does is he sees. This is why it's so important in the cycle of the miracles that healing the blind man, uh, men comes towards the end because we have to have the ability to see. If we're going to follow him. We need to see. He sees. And this is one of the echoes of, you know, in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. He said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw. He sees. But what, it was good. But here he comes into the world. He sees. But what he sees is not good. But he has the ability here to see. And the first step in faithfully following him and being on mission with him is to have eyes to see. So that's one of the questions. Do you see? And one of the key first prayers is, Lord, give us eyes to see. Help us to see. Notice he saw, but the next thing, look what he did. He sorrowed. He had compassion for them. Why? Because they were distressed and dejected, harassed and helpless. They were distressed, dejected, harassed, helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. So the first thing he sees and what he sees then motivates him to have compassion. You know, this is an interesting word, compassion. It's very closely related to what we saw a couple weeks ago, mercy. When they cried out, the son of David, have mercy on us. Mercy, you know, uh, mercy in some sense is compassion moved to action. But, you know, middle school boys, this is, this is your moment because uh, the actual literal word for compassion is movement of the bowels. To have your bowels move. And so he's, he's, he's moved by something. It's this intense feeling, emotion where I, you have to act. You have to do something. You're moved. But uh, he's, he's moved to action. But then notice what moves him. He has compassion because they were distressed. They were dejected, helpless, hopeless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. What is that image? What does that mean? You know, the shepherd is the classic image for either political or religious leadership in the Bible. So he's saying their leaders have failed them, either politically or religiously. They're like sheep without a shepherd. Now, what's fascinating, if you were to ask the political leaders at that time, that would have been a shock to them. So, I mean, Jesus is living at the time, is coming off the reign of Herod the Great, now, one simple life strategy is always be leery of people who give themselves their own nickname, especially if it's the great. We were watching this thing on Muhammad Ali, and Cynthia was watching him kind of talk about how he was the greatest. And she was like, did he really say things like that? Like, yeah, that's, that's really it. So Herod the Great. But now if you asked Herod, the reason why he dubbed himself the great is because he actually did things from a worldly perspective that were great. No ruler in Israel since the time of Solomon had put them on the political map to make them the type of players that Herod had done. His building projects were extravagant. His wealth was booming. Commerce was booming. I mean, in one sense, from one simply worldly political perspective, he had done great things. And when Jesus sees it, he is not impressed. That's what he says. They're like sheep without a shepherd. They've been failed. So it would have shocked at least him to hear that. But then notice what else. They're, they're, what are they? They're distressed, or your word might be harassed. They're harassed. And then they're helpless, dejected. So what are they? 
You know, some of the, Matthew is so important, you have to kind of hear some of the music of the Old Testament that he weaves all throughout. And all throughout this section, you're going to hear some of the music from the Old Testament, some from uh, Ezekiel 34 is one of the, uh, the, the places of these shepherds who have failed and the good, the Lord will send the good shepherd who will lead his people. There's also music from Ahab in the days of Jezebel and the days of Saul when the people were wondering and vulnerable and hungry and thirsty. And he says, that's what he sees. There's They're harassed, means they're weary, they're beaten down, and then they're helpless, confused, depressed. They don't know who to go, where to turn to. And it's interesting because these crowds are flocking to him, but one of the tensions of the whole book is will they actually follow? Will they be true disciples? Will they actually commit to him? And when he looks, he sees these crowds and he has compassion because they're just being knocked around by every wind and wave. They have no stability. They have no direction. They have no commitment. And what um, this promise that they, they need a shepherd, that goes back to Matthew 2. Well, when in Matthew and Matthew 2 is quoting Micah that the Lord will send out of Bethlehem will come a ruler and he will shepherd the people. But the first step, if we're going to have be on mission with Jesus, we have to have his eyes to see, but then we have to have his heart. We have to be moved by the things that he's moved by. So do you have that compassion? You just think about it. every day you can turn on the television and see things that can distress you. People in places and situations of being harassed or helpless. What moves you? What brings out the compassion in you? Real ministry is always driven by compassion. It's driven not by self-righteousness or anger or aggression or a desire to to be aggrandizing. Real ministry is driven by compassion. And one of the things we have to ask is, Lord, give us a heart to be moved by the same things that move yours. But then notice what he does. He sees something, he's moved by compassion, and then how does he act? What does he do? Look what he says. Then in verse 37, he said to his disciples, so he sees, he sorrows, and then he speaks. But what does he say? The harvest is abundant. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. Isn't this fascinating? I mean, notice what is his response? His response is to give them, first he gives them a picture and then he gives them a, a command, or he gives them a metaphor and then an order, or an, an image and then instruction. And the picture is actually meant to shape how they're viewing the world. Because everybody's looking out and seeing people who are harassed, people who are helpless, people who are distressed. And the reason is the failure of the political and religious leaders. So everybody can see the same thing. But now what does Jesus do to help them understand how they're supposed to live into that world, how they're supposed to react, how they're supposed to respond? He paints a picture for them. But notice what the picture is. It's a picture of harvest. Look, he says, the harvest is plentiful. You know, it's like, wait, is that, you're looking out in this this situation and what you're seeing is an opportunity? You want us not to see the distress and the, this thing, you're seeing an opportunity. What Jesus sees in that moment, he's looking at all of the downcasts and he says, they're looking for hope and they're looking for help. So this is an opportunity. And I think over the last couple of weeks, you know, as, as, 
everyone, I think, is just reflecting, or have I been reflecting on the sources of just the extraordinary social and political chaos of the past year and the widespread you know, episodes of anger and animosity and division that cut through, I mean, cut through families, cut through streets, cut through churches, cut through you know, all things. You just wonder, right, what are we actually seeing? I just wonder if so many of the, the cures for our ailments that come from everywhere, come from the left, come from the right, come from the center, are all similar expressions of the same misconceptions of what actually got us into this place to begin with. And one of the things Jesus will do is he'll give you eyes to see, and then he'll actually give you metaphors or images that shape or are meant to control what you're seeing. And I think that's one of the most helpful and needed things that we as Jesus' people need at this moment. Give us eyes to see what we're actually seeing. Give us your understanding, your interpretation. And he gives them a metaphor, and the metaphor is harvest. Isn't that an interesting metaphor? You actually can read all throughout Matthew. This is one of Matthew's favorite metaphors that he, he has and that Jesus uses over and over. And almost every time he uses the metaphor of harvest, it has two components. It's either judgment or joy. So the harvest is a time of judgment where things are getting separated. So it's judgment, but it's also a time of joy because this is what you're selling. You're, all the work that has been done, the seeds have been planted, it's been tilled, if the soil has come up, and now is the time for harvest, for celebration. But I think the challenge for us is when you look out in the world, what do you see? Do you see a bad situation or do you see an opportunity? Do you see things that need help? You see people who need hope. I think one of the most profound things we can ask for is a perspective shift. And then notice what he commands them to do. What's the first thing he wants them to do? What is the first thing he sees? He gives them this image. And then look at verse 38. What's the command? Therefore. I mean, what would you expect? He sees people who are helpless. He sees people who are hopeless. Therefore, here's what you do. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. Why does he start here? Why is the first thing they're meant to do is to pray? You know, one of the things that kind of fascinates me is just people's perspective. And um, when I was doing my PhD, some of my fellow students in my, in my program, there was three students who were uh, exchange students from South Korea. And I loved doing different research projects with them because they had such different uh, perspective. And on one, we would have different, you know, interesting conversations. And we did this little kind of informal study because I was so intrigued about the difference in perspective and how we would see ourselves and how they would see us. And so like you, you know, you ask, you know, you get 10 like pastors in a room and say, all right, what's the biggest challenge the church is facing today? And you could hear all types of, you know, how are we failing? Well, we're failing in this area. We're failing this, become to this, not enough that you can hear all the things. But what's fascinating with those guys, you ask them, like, what's the biggest deficiency do you see in the American church? Say, you don't pray. So you, you have no spiritual vitality. I'm spiritually alive. And so I actually asked, we did this little kind of very informal survey. So Rob, this wouldn't pass, you know, statistical analysis. But one of them just, he did an informal poll of 300 ministers from uh, his hometown in South Korea. You know, South Korea had like nine of the 10 biggest churches in the world. And here's a couple of things he asked. He said, all right, what percentage of the ministers in your community engage in daybreak prayer meetings? So basically every church has a daybreak prayer meeting where they meet at 4.30 or 5 and they pray. What percentage of the ministers is 
100% of them regularly, and about 10% of the congregation. Said, all right, uh, what percentage of the, the people in the community engage in the overnight prayer meetings? So you have basic overnight prayer meetings that once a week, every Friday night from 10 to 4. Said 50% of the ministers every, every Friday night, overnight prayer meetings. You know, the largest church in the world, in, in uh, South Korea, one of the things they do, like if you want to have pastoral counseling with the minister, they actually have a prayer mountain. And they'll say, all right, three days prayer and fasting on the prayer mountain, and then you can... We'll, we'll talk about whatever you're wrestling with. So we need to know you're serious about like, we don't have time for people who aren't serious. Three days prayer, fasting, then we'll engage. And so when they look at us, what they see, like what we see is, you know, a failure in this area. What they see is a failure in this area. Why does Jesus start with prayer? Because all real genuine ministry begins here. And this sermon on mission, one of the things I think he's going to tell us is that the two hardest things for any Christian in any church to keep alive is vibrant, humble, dependent, continual prayer and evangelism. We want anything that should make any Christian feel guilty as you're failing in these two areas is because we're utterly dependent on him. And so he starts here. And so I just wonder if Jesus will look at us and say, look, if you're not praying about something, you have no right to complain about it. Before you, if you're not praying, you shouldn't be doing anything else. But notice what we're supposed to pray for. He says, pray that he'll send out, all right, what needs to go out? I mean, do we need special ops, spiritual special ops, the Navy SEALs to go out? Pray that he'll send out workers. Just common, simple, unpretentious workers. It doesn't say send out heroes or catalytic leaders or gurus or different experts or superstars or influencers. We need influencers. Nope. What we need are workers. Humble, dependent, faithful, obedient workers who will go out and gather in what's already been accomplished. Somebody else has already done all the planting. You're just gathering in someone else's work. And it's interesting to think about, like, where did that come from? And a fascinating word, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say motivate, recruit, inspire. He says send out. The Greek word is ekbalo, to ek, cast, balo, out. Push them out, cast them out. <laughs> they need to be thrust out because he knows how, how hard it is. They just get us moving. But then who? It's, notice whose harvest is this. It's the Lord's harvest. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send him out. Then he does a couple more things. You start in 10.1. He summons his 12. Then the Lord of the harvest starts to actually send out those workers who so will move. And we'll pause here as we think about this. Because what you see here is just the source of his mission. You know, look at this whole section. And the source is you have to have a heart, the heart of the living Lord for hurting people. So where it begins. And then you have the prayers, the faithful prayers of uh, Jesus' disciples for more workers. And then he's going to call and send out. But this is his model. This is his model. And we want to follow it. We want to ask him to help us see. So we transition to the time of the Lord's Supper. Just think for a moment. You know, one of the biggest things is we need eyes to see. And one thing is not just see problems, deficiencies. Anybody can see those, but what we really need is to see opportunities. We need to see evidences of grace. You know, when you look into the mirror, what do you see? When you look out into the world, what do you see? Our, uh, our third child turned five on Friday, 
And uh, one of the things he wanted to do for his birthday was to go up to the ballpark. He's gotten obsessed with baseball and wanted to go watch his, our neighbor play in the next level up from T-ball. And so it was kind of like this, I guess this is a vision of our next 10 years of every Friday night up at the baseball field. And, uh, you know, when I go up there, I, I don't really care much about watching the games, but I do think it's fascinating just to watch the interactions of the people. And, you know, th there's few things that are as cute as like four-year-old soccer and then five-year-old T-ball. And, uh, you know, you're just watching. And we were watching this game, and this was kind of the next, next level up. And one team was really good and really skillful. And you can tell, like, their dads have done a lot of work with them, and they had kind of done all this thing. And the other team was not. And uh, fortunately, in this league, that you, we used to have the mercy rule where it was seven, but now you, kids get extended more mercy because their mercy is at four runs per inning. So you get four runs per inning, then you stop, and you, the next team you don't have to get their three outs. And uh, there was one, you know, one little boy who kind of caught my attention and affection because, um, how do you say it? <laughs> He was struggling and uh, didn't quite, you know, and they, they put him in the outfield. So parents, if you don't know this, the coaches put the kid in the outfield to try and hide them. So in T-ball, so he was put in the outfield and um, the first ball, you know, kind of came to him and it became very obvious as soon as it did. He had no idea what to do with it. So he, he found a way to stop it without his glove and then just panicked and had no idea what to do. And there's a law in baseball, if you've ever played, the baseball gods play cruel tricks on people. So if you make an error or a mistake in the field, like the next five balls will be hit to you just to further humiliate you. It's just how it works. And uh, so that happened and somehow the next several balls. But what's so interesting, his dad was, you know, they have coaches everywhere in T-ball and his dad was the coach out in the outfield and with each failure, his dad was getting more frustrated, and you know, the first one, he was like, come on, throw it to second base, throw it to second base, and he just panicked and didn't throw it anywhere, and then look at it, and then came to him again, throw it to second base, throw it, to, and so he kind of panicked again and threw it, but it didn't go anywhere near second, it went about eight feet off, out, um, down third, and each kind of scenario, the dad was getting more discouraged and frustrating, but it was really interesting compared the dad's reaction to what's going on to who I'm assuming was the mom, because he had like a whole clan of like mom, auntie, grandma, they were all there. And each episode, the dad was getting more frustrated. The mom was determined to get more encouraging. And so she kept calling him Poppy. I don't know. So she goes, oh, Poppy, good job. You look so good, Poppy. Wait, good throw. Good throw. And the dad's like, no, why are you throwing it over there? Throwing it? And he's getting so frustrated. And I felt so, I felt so bad for Poppy. And I felt like, I, I know exactly how you feel. Because I mean, sometimes you're just fumbling through life. And I wonder, like, how do you assume that God is looking at you? Like, do you assume he's looking at you like, oh, come on, can you not do anything right? Why are you not throwing this? It's so easy. Look, you got to take it. Why? Do you assume that he's looking at you with such a critical eye? Or do you assume he's looking at you like the mama? The mama was going to find something to praise him no matter what. And it got harder and harder. But eventually she was so proud of the way he put on his uniform. But she was going to praise something. And it just me I think I, because I think so often I assume that Jesus is looking at me like the Father with a critical eye saying, Come on, can't you get it? Why, why, are you, why are you failing? Come on, come on, come on, come on. What's wrong with you? When I wonder if that's really how he sees. How does he see us? How does he see the world? He has eyes of compassion. You know, I'm going to brag for a second on Kathy. So Kathy's sitting right up here. We prayed for her earlier this morning and, uh, 
you know, two weeks ago at our Easter service, Kathy really wanted to come and, you know, she, it's a long service, kind of hard to make through. And then she kind of got about halfway through and needed to, to leave because it was kind of overwhelming and, you know, so much happening as she was going out. Cynthia kind of stopped her and Kathy felt really just discouraged. Because I mean, I, I wanted so bad to get through the whole Easter service to sing and you know hear the word, and and she was looking at her morning from a perspective of discouragement, and like I, I failed, I didn't make it, and Cynthia got to uh, speak heavenly words of life to remind her that's not what's happened here. Jesus sees all of the effort. He sees the Easter dress. He sees the girls. He sees you You did your hair and you made it. You made it this far and he's proud of you. He's probably more proud of you than any other person who attended church in the state of Florida on that Easter because you have more hurdles to overcome than any one other asked them. So I don't want to hear excuses from anybody else because of what you've overcome. When he sees, he's not discouraged with you. He's proud of you. I just wonder how often we need his eyes and wonder we assume when he sees, does he see us as failures or is he proud? Does he see the world with compassion? And then how can we then have those same eyes where we see the world with compassion as well? So as we transition and kind of move into our time of communion, what I want you to think about is, you know, one of the gifts that communion is and one of the miracles it can do for us is often when we taste, our eyes can be opened. You know, on the day Jesus was resurrected, the very first Easter Sunday, he walked with some disciples and he broke bread. And it wasn't until he broke the bread that they could then see. They could see who he really was. They could actually see what he was really been doing the whole time. And what they were interpreting as this colossal failure was actually not that at all. It was the greatest victory the world had ever seen. It was a triumph, not a failure. But they needed the broken bread and his spirit to help them see. So take a moment as you take. And on the night he was betrayed, he gave, he gave them the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Taste. And then he took the cup. He said, this cup represents my blood of the new covenant that's been shed for you. Drink it. Uh, it's been shed for the forgiveness of sins. And so as we taste and we take Let's ask him, because before there's any real ministry, any real mission, any real movement, first we have to have his, his eyes to see, his heart of compassion, and then we have to learn to pray. So let's ask him to give us those things. So Lord, we ask as we take communion now that you would give us your eyes to see. Help us to see the, the world as it really is. Help us to see ourselves as we really are, not pretending, not you know, prancing around as if we're got it all together, but to see, um, see ourselves as we really are. But then give us a heart of compassion. Help us to see ourselves with compassion. Help us to see our world with compassion. Help us to look out on those who are helpless and hurting and have compassion. So Lord, we ask that you would give us eyes to see them. We ask that you would pray. We pray that you would begin to send out workers 
faithful laborers who will enter into the trenches in every area of life, in all of the areas where there is tremendous brokenness. We pray for the workers you sent into our justice system. We pray that you would uh, encourage them and empower them and be with them. We pray for the workers that you send into our health care system. We pray that you would protect them, encourage them, be with them. Pray for all the workers you send out into all the areas of brokenness. Every aspect of life, we pray for them now. And this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. And now may the love of a dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this day, this week, forever and always. Amen. Go in peace.